This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the healthcare industry is reeling from another major data breach. This time it was Anthem, which oversees some 80 million customers through the Blue Cross and Blue Shield divisions. It's the largest breach of healthcare company to date, and, and it seems to be a growing trend, Margaret. A recent statistic showed that health industry hacks have increased 75% between 2013 and 2014. Well, it's certainly an area of concern, and so much so that the president went to Stanford University recently to host a cybersecurity summit and encouraged the tech industry to improve online security measures for not just the healthcare industry, but all industries. Many new entities that have recently gone digital in healthcare, and the protections there simply aren't in place. They aren't, and Anthem has offered uh, to provide identity theft protection for 80 million compromised customers, but this is a growing problem that needs more preventative solutions. Well, our guest today, we have to say, is not a cybersecurity expert, but John Nasta is a digital health futurist, and he's been analyzing the growing potential of digital health technologies that are and will be transforming our concept of how we consume healthcare. He's founder of Nasta Lab, a digital health think tank. He's also recently named to the Google Health Advisory Board, a group of global health analysts assisting Google in streamlining its health-related search engine. Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, checks in. She's always seeking to uncover misstatements made about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com. Find us on Facebook or CHC Radio on Twitter. We love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with John Nasta in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. A relatively problem-free round of open enrollment under the Affordable Care Act ended with a bit of a glitch in the final stretch. On the day before open enrollment was to end, there was an outage of an internal revenue service function that may have interfered with as many as half a million people being able to sign up for coverage. The glitch prevented some people from getting their income verified so they could enroll on healthcare.gov. The Department of Health and Human Services is allowing those who encountered that glitch on Saturday to receive an extension, but they were urging everyone to try and sign up by midnight Sunday, February 15th, if they could. Minnesota, Vermont, Kentucky, Idaho and Hawaii and the District of Columbia announced extensions by Sunday. Still over 10 million Americans signed up for coverage during that second go-around ahead of the administration's expectations. Meanwhile, many uninsured Americans won't understand they have to pay a tax penalty for remaining uninsured under the Affordable Care Act until they go to file their taxes. Families, USA, and other advocacy groups are urging the administration to give Americans some additional time beyond the end of open enrollment so they can understand what their tax liabilities will be in addition to their potential subsidies to help offset the purchase of insurance. And for middle-aged women, menopause comes with a myriad of symptoms from mild to severe, perhaps the most notable of them being hot flashes. According to a recent in-depth study, turns out those sudden bursts of intense heat can last for a decade and a half in some women. The study looked at whether the hot flashes began after the end of menstruation and found for women whose hot flashes started earlier in the process, they tended to have the symptoms for longer periods of time. African-American and Hispanic women seem to have the longest bout with hot flash symptoms. 
in some cases longer than 14 years. The average stretch of time women must endure, about seven and a half years. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with digital health futurist John Nasta, founder and president of Nasta Lab, a think tank dedicated to the empowerment of digital health and communication in the healthcare industry. He was recently uh, appointed to Google Health Advisory Board, comprised of global health thought leaders to assist Google in better directing health and medical searches. Mr. Nasta served as president and chief creative officer for Ogilvy. Common Health Worldwide, a global health communication entity serving clients in 32 countries. Mr. Nasta earned his degree from Boston University and Harvard, where he worked in cardiovascular research. He's also won many numerous distinctions, including the making of the digital health publications, Bionically's list of top influencers shaping digital health in 2015. John, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you very much. It's it's a pleasure. I'm a big fan. Oh, that's great. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of excitement around digital health from uh, genomics telemedicine, from uh, Ray Kurzweil's Singularity, and to Eric Topol, who we recently had on his digital democratization of healthcare. And you've spoken about how all of these different ideas are coming together at an inflection point in healthcare. And it seems like there are many different ideas about what digital health really means. When you talk about digital health, what do you think that inflection uh, point really looks like? And, and where are the opportunities and also the vulnerabilities? I think first and foremost, when we look at, at this digital health arena, we have a little bit of digital fitness. We have a little bit of digital wellness. We have a little bit of digital health. We have a little bit of digital medicine. So there are many, many forces just within the context context of this topic that seem to be converging. And I'll jump to the end of your question first, because you talk about the vulnerabilities. I think that there is a sense of becoming trivial, that it becomes a, a tracker, a device that I whimsically wear on my wrist that really has no important clinical significance. And, and that's what I think is emerging. If we mm-hmm. want to look at that, that fundamental inflection point, it's really the shift from an option to an imperative. Mm-hmm. As we see technology advancing to the point where we can begin to detect cancer at an earlier and earlier and earlier stage, people call it stage zero, the use of a tracker to track these nanoparticles as they circulate through your body and are activated by cancer doesn't become an option. It's not just a a sexy uh, pedometer. It becomes a device that can save our lives. And I think that as we move to that, we will see that sort of convergence driving use becomes it, be, it becomes so much more important. People have often talked about this as an as a inflection point in human history or a, a Gutenberg moment, if you will, that this is a, a game changer. And I know that, that Eric Topol has articulated this you know, extraordinarily well in his book, mm-hmm. but I think that it's even bigger than that. That we're not only seeing the emergence of a technological innovation, such as the printing press, if you will, we're seeing a social imperative. We're seeing the empowerment of the individuals. We're seeing many forces occurring, including the ability to garner information on the Internet. So it's, it's really a confluence of events that I talk about as an inflection point in human history. And people have said that this very well may become this era of health as a defining element. And I know I'm getting a bit long-winded here, but the ultimate translation of all this 
is, and I'll, I'll pull a lesson out of Volvo's playbook mm-hmm. to build it around a single word, is longevity. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, mm-hmm. we're seeing the ability to really push survival out to an amazing point. Well, so much of the focus uh, seems to have been on the overt technology, the, the smart patient monitors and the apps and the wearables and the robotics. And I, I think of people uh, who are seasoned clinicians. And, you know, if I had uh, one of my colleagues sitting in the office, they'd say, yeah, but when the patient's scared and when they really are frightened and they don't know what's going on, they want to be right in my office. And it really is that that sort of human connection which underlies this. And I'd I'd be curious uh, how how you as a digital health analyst and futurist uh, see digital health affecting this relationship, this human human bond. It's a great question, and it's an important question. And and I'm not so sure how far I want to stick my head out on oh, the top. Oh, go ahead, Margaret. stick stick it out. But you know what? <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you right now. I think that the human touch is overrated now. So there he goes. I can hear mm-hmm. the, the axe falling. But today, if I asked you if you'd like to go for a ride in my driverless car, you would cower in fear. I'm not going to get on, on 95 up to Boston and <laughs> drive in a driverless car. Are you kidding me? Ten years from now, the same question will be posed, and the answer will be how ridiculous it is to have a human driving a car. That's very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's just too unsafe. Mm-hmm. So I think there will be fundamental shifts. And, and, and this, is, this is in part medicine and science as well as human nature. Boy, let's, let's just think back. The phone. Oh, how, how horrible the phone was that disconnected the nature of human engagement. Now I can speak with someone through an electrical wire? Well, there goes humanity right down, down the drain. <laughs> we will embrace this technology in the context of a different reality. Sometimes we look at the future. And we interpret it through the norms of our life today. So if you look at medicine today, physicians embrace technology and use it not necessarily to disrupt patient engagement, but to enhance patient engagement. And I think that's our challenge. Our our ability is to have a bit of the humanity in this, but also leverage technology. So I'm a big fan of technological innovation, and I think it may provide the opportunity to actually facilitate Mm-hmm. human touch. I think that the magic of social media as an example of technology is not about technology, but about the human connections that people can make. And I think we can find some of that in medicine. So there'll, there'll always be the naysayers. There'll always be people like my mom who felt the answering machine was, was horrible. <laughs> but but, as but wanted you to taught, call her. <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, Copernicus taught us that great ideas often started blasphemies. And I think that that's a good sign success. John, one of your many areas of expertise certainly was called from your years at Ogilvy's Common Health (laughs) Worldwide was perfecting the art of communication in healthcare space. And and branding in the health world is becoming increasingly important. And we've certainly seen this as the second round of open enrollment under the Affordable Care Act has ended. And and the president even used BuzzFeed, an online popular cultural service, to get his message out to youth. Uh, how important is messaging in the modern era of healthcare, and what role do you see communications and social media continuing to play for policymakers, providers, and, and general users of healthcare? You know, we often look at, at the technological development in digital health around the eyes of the of the innovator, but we have to look at it in the eyes of the patient. And I think that 
A great idea that no one knows about is a little bit like blinking in the dark. And I think that the ability to build a brand, to build what I refer to as a single-minded point of difference, where we have something we're building our story around and creating language that resonates to our community. So I think technology is going to afford us the opportunities to build very smart and brilliant brands. Let's, let's take an example of the 50-year-old patient with high uh, blood lipids, high cholesterol. Once they're put on a statin, they're handed a sheet of paper of information about side effects, dosage, all that kind of stuff. Nothing new here. That's often written for the fifth grader, and I think that's an abomination because the Stanford professor has to understand that information in the context of science and graphs and all those things that, that would appeal to him or to her. Yet the single mom who lives in the Deep South, who has hyperlipidemia for a variety of other causes, has to read that in another context. It has to be relevant to her diet and her lifestyle. So I think the opportunity for us to build a brand that is uniquely suited to the needs of the individual could be extraordinarily powerful. IBM Watson has, has taught us that the machine can learn to understand our speech. We can also put speech in context. For example, why can't we create customized communication around a brand that is uniquely suited to me or for the professor at Stanford, crafting a message that is not only relevant but resonant? I think you probably like sticking your neck out and seeing if there's an act, so let me throw you another one. <laughs> and that, sure. would be, that would be on the subject of electronic health records. So yes. we have uh, you know, completed, I guess, close to a decade probably since Meaningful Use first appeared, and uh, we invested billions, I think with a B, in it as a mm -hmm. country to help move people from paper to electronic health records. And I'm not so sure it's been such a huge advance for our patients or for the providers who are trying to organize lots of material within the construct of electronic health records and then get patients to come in and view them via their patient portal and access. So what, what's your thoughts on where we are with the state of uh, the art and the science of electronic health records and giving our patients, also known as the consumers, good access to it in a way that makes sense to them? You know, I could throw out the essential word of interoperability. I don't think anyone's hit a home run. I think that the electronic medical record, patient portals, have been developed out of necessity, but we found no social or clinical imperative to push it along. And, and I think that's our challenge right now with a lot of the areas around technology and digital health. There is no clinical imperative that is, is driving it, there just doesn't seem to be that, that psychic nudge or, or even outcomes data to push people along. So I think that's probably part of the dilemma. You know, I think that there's, there's a bit of reluctance and hesitation on one hand, even though everyone's at the starting line, ready to go, ready that we know we have government mandates, but it seems that everyone's standing at the, at the starting line ready to go, but they're looking at each other and not looking at the finish line. And it's a real complex problem. It's a struggle. We're speaking today with digital health futurist John Nasta, founder and president of Nasta Lab, a think tank dedicated to the empowerment of digital health and communications in the healthcare industry. He was also recently appointed to the Google Health Advisory Board, comprised of global health thought leaders to assist Google in better directing health and medical research 
John, so that's kind of exciting. I know it's new for you. Uh, I'm not sure you've been able to attend any of the advisory board mm-hmm. meetings. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about what you want to share uh, with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that you what you bring to the table and sure. also what you're looking to learn in that environment. But they are they are not sure. they are not sure. a group to uh, leave this area alone. Well, you know, I think that when we look at innovation in health, there's a new phenomenon in the world, and, and I call it the collaboratory, that it's the ability to collaborate to foster innovation. Now, I'll, I'll take a big step back and just talk about the nature of the clinical experience. Back in the old days, it was about control. I would go to the physician. He would hand me a prescription. I'd take a pill, and, and you know maybe I'd, I'd use the pill, maybe not, but that was the dynamic. Today, it's a collaborative experience. Patients want to be part of that dynamic, and it's collaboration that is the solution to getting to superior outcomes. Now, we're seeing the same thing with companies like Google, that Google is collaborating with companies like Novartis to create, in this example, a contact lens that measures blood glucose levels. So Google is really kind of moving into being an innovator in the health space. And isn't it interesting that the big news is coming out of, out of companies like Google or Apple around changing the healthcare dynamics? To me, that's just the seat change right there. What happened to Big Pharma mm-hmm. and their leading role mm-hmm. in this? But Google is now willing to, to store your genome in the cloud for about 25 bucks a year. Google is working on the development of nanoparticles. Earlier we talked a little bit about detecting cancer at a very early stage, at stage zero, if you will. That's a Google initiative. So even Google Glass, as an example of both a success and a failure, in the context of clinical medicine, we're seeing Google Glass as a very important tool. Surgeons are using it. So Google Glass is, you know, another one of these devices that is... I think very relevant to Google's initiative in the healthcare space. And finally, they are working on technology to simulate the human brain. So when you look at Google, you you cannot disconnect them from health. In fact, the Google um, Google fund, the investment fund, the VC fund, is probably about 35% health now. When you look at big pharma in the role of industry in the context of healthcare and wellness, we're seeing companies like Google Um, working with Novartis and and companies alike, um, developing new and interesting ways to not only practice medicine, but to think about care at the very earliest of levels. Uh, We note that 5% of Google's 100 billion monthly searches are reportedly health-related. And, you know, it's it's a new way for patients to get information. But I'm curious what Google is doing with the nature of these searches in terms of responding to and creating their new products. I thought it was so interesting, the partnership uh, that Google launched with the Mayo Clinic and a team of artists to provide these detailed, vetted information pertaining to 400 of those common health searches using art, basically. What is being seen in these billions of health-related searches that Google is trying to respond to? Well, I think that information in of itself is, is a bit of a condition. That information overload is a real problem. It's not only a problem for patients, but it's also a problem for the clinician. There's just such an ever-increasing amount of information from practice guidelines to trial selection that today's clinician just just can't really handle. So I think that the interesting thing is we have to share that burden. 
And it goes back to this fundamental idea of moving from control to collaboration. And what Google is doing with, with their search optimization, and again, this is just out of the box that just was launched last week, but what they're doing is acting as a surrogate curator of this information. And it's the ability to take it and funnel it through a, a structured analytics, whether that be Mayo or, or someone else to help guide it. Yet it's going to let some patients take a look and help in that dialogue. So I think that information overload is a disease, and it's a disease not only in the context of a lot of information, but it's also a disease in the context of the wrong information. And I'm not going to mention names of, of, of well-known physicians or celebrities, but they've gotten on their soapbox, and they've made bold judgments about certain drugs, agents, mm -hmm. and therapies. And we found that in, in some instances they've been completely wrong. In other mm -hmm. instances, mm -hmm. they've been wrong half the time. So I think what Google is doing here is stepping up to the plate and help codify clinical information so that this is one part of many that, that patients can use as a bit more reliable. So I think it's, it's a good step forward, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. John, you're sort of a renaissance man in terms of your broad view of the world looking at a digital horizon. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in your NASTA lab uh, group. What, what types of things are on your mind? Well, there, there are sort of two fundamental initiatives that excite us here. One is that innovation must be empowered through communication. And the stories we tell about digital health, whether it be the Scanadu Scout, this amazing device that reads your, your vital signs off of your forehead, similar to what Bones did on Star Trek, to the use of nanotechnology to detect, to detect cancer or heart attacks, you have to make that story resonant and make it stick. So, so part of that is being able to craft communication that works. Now, and we're exploring the best ways to communicate innovation because I think that just empowering the patient in a vacuum without embracing the gatekeeper, the clinician, the nurse, the pharmacist, may do a disservice to the true innovation at hand. Will it really be patients standing up and saying, we demand our data that maybe patients will, will not only become organ donors, but they'll become data donors hmm. and take an active role in pushing this data, you know, into the ether and helping it drive drive information. So, so those are some of the interesting things that, that we're looking at. And the other side of the coin is the fundamental changes in clinical practice, and, and that's um, things like telemedicine, teleconsultation, the ability for an intern or resident to speak with an attending about an urgent case through through an online connection. Mm -hmm. But the first-line triage mm -hmm. type of scenario are interesting. Visual medicine, the ability to use the biggest processing part of our brain to visually assimilate things. Um, ultrasound being used at the point of, of need, at a car accident. And then the emergence of nanotechnology and other things that are fundamentally changing one thing. And this is the real takeaway. It's moving digital health from a, an option to a clinical imperative. We've been speaking today with John Nasta, founder and president of the digital health think tank Nasta Lab and a member of the Google Health Advisory Board. You can learn more about his work by going to nastalab.com or you can follow him on Twitter at John Nasta. John, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you very much. 
Conversations on Healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? We recently fact-checked a claim that we call a true but claim, an assertion that's correct but changes in meaning or significance once it's put in context. The Republican National Committee said that the average family health insurance premium had increased by $4,154 under President Obama. That's right, but it's a much slower rate of growth than under President George W. Bush. In fact, employer-sponsored premiums have been growing at moderate rates for the past few years. The RNC made the claim on Twitter and lists the statistic, along with other premium numbers, in a State of the Union fact check. The average employer-sponsored family premium has indeed gone up by $4,154 under Obama from 2008, before he took office, to 2014, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation's annual employer survey conducted with the Health Research and Educational Trust. But that's relatively slow growth for premiums. It's an increase of 33%. In Bush's last six years in office, the average family premium went up 58%. If we look at Bush's first six years, the difference is even larger, a 78% increase. These figures include both what employers pay and employees. If the RNC wanted to show what has happened to these premiums under the Affordable Care Act, it should have used the 22% increase that has occurred since 2010. The fact is the average family premium has grown more slowly over the last five years than it did in the previous five or the five years before that. The recent slow growth in employer premiums mirrors the slow growth we've seen in healthcare spending overall. Not that the ACA is responsible for the slowdown either. Experts have said the law has had a minimal impact. The economy has been the major factor. But the Republicans' claim of premium growth, cast as bad news, is actually an improvement compared with the premium growth before Obama took office. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Tens of millions of people around the world have conditions that make it impossible for them to speak on their own, requiring them to adopt a computerized voice box for communicating. Perhaps the most well-known of these folks is the physicist Stephen Hawking. I would have thought it was fairly obvious what I meant. The problem is, that sound of Hawking speaking through his voice box is the same voice sound, say, that a 10-year-old girl with a neurologic disorder might be forced to use as well, because there just haven't been many voice options on the market. In the U.S. alone, there are 2.5 million Americans who are unable to speak, and many of whom use computerized devices to communicate. At a recent TED Talk, speech researcher and innovator Dr. Rupal Patel shared a program she has launched that can change that reality, Vocal ID. There had to be a way to reverse engineer a voice from whatever little was left over. So we decided to do exactly that. 
we set out to create custom crafted voices that captured their unique vocal identities. Creating a voice bank of donor voices that will allow voices to be individualized for each unique patient, giving them a unique, customized, personalized voice. Why don't we take the source from the person we want the voice to sound like and borrow the filter from someone about the same age and size, because they can articulate speech, and then mix them. Because when we mix them, we can get a voice that's as clear as our surrogate talker, that's the person we borrowed the filter from, and is as similar in identity to our target talker. Since this popular TED Talk, 16,000 people have signed up to be voice donors at the Human Voice Bank Initiative. So volunteers, like this little girl, will read a series of simple phrases over a several hour period. Things happen in pairs. I love to sleep. The sky is blue without clouds. And then those phrases are matched with the voice footprint of the patient being provided for. This voice is only for me. I can't wait to use my new voice with my friends. Such speech synthesis will give that person the dignity of a speaking voice that is as closely matched to their own identity as possible. They say that giving blood can save lives. Giving your voice can change Dr. Patel, who's a professor of computer engineering at Northeastern University, has launched the website VocalID.com. I imagine a whole world of surrogate donors from all walks of life, different sizes, different ages, coming together in this voice drive to give people voices that are as colorful as their personalities. And with the bank of voice donors now building around the world, Dr. Patel expects that patients with conditions ranging from muscular dystrophy to Lou Gehrig's disease or stroke will one day be given the chance to communicate in a voice made just for them. The Human Voice Bank Initiative, matching vocal donors with millions of people who seek to authentically communicate with friends and family in a voice that most closely matches what would be their own, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.